Father, above all, today we desire to see you, focus on you, to be more acquainted with who you are. And in that, we know that our hearts will be bowed, our hearts will be stimulated, and it'll be just a natural thing for us to worship you and praise you and to give you all the praise that you deserve. And we know that we are inadequate to do that in ourselves, but we know that as you work in us, in our spirits, that you will in fact move us to see reality and see you and to see clearly those things you want us to know. As we look into your word, Lord, and this passage that is so important that you would in fact bring it to life so that we might understand it, to better be able to share to, with those that don't know you the lost world in which we live in. We just commit our time asking that you would have your way amongst all of us. If there be anything that would d- distract us or keep us from fully focusing on what you have for us, that we would either confess that sin or set aside those things that are distracting us, that we may have full benefit this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, in the passage that we've been looking at, what is this, our fourth week in this little passage? Very, very important, probably one of the most important passages of all of Scripture. We've introduced it as the heart of the Bible, essentially, certainly the heart of Romans. In fact, one commentator said that after verse 26, Paul could have wrapped up the whole book and entered into the conclusion, and we'd have a very, very complete book much like some of the shorter books that are only a few chapters long. So this is a very important passage. Unfortunately for us, it's only one sentence, and because of that, it has a lot of parts to it, and all of those parts fit together to communicate some ideas here that we need to understand. So we've been taking it slowly in order to break it apart, to see all of the parts and putting it back together to be able to better understand verses 21 through 26. Most of the versions break it at least into two sentences, but in the Greek text, it's just one sentence. So a lot of ins and outs that we have to take a look at. And getting close to the end, we're going to look at verse 25, and then we probably won't get past that, because that one, like all the other verses we've looked at, is packed full of things and language that, in general, most people are not familiar with. So we have to take a close look at them. And even those of you that have been believers for a long time, we hear these words so often that we think we understand them, but uh, sometimes we may not have the full understanding. So we're dealing with a letter that was written to believers that lived in the city of Rome. And this is just another site from Rome. Circus Maximus, and what remains are the seats of a large stadium in the first century. They would have athletic contests, races with chariots, etc. This was the heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, and everything focused in that city. Looking at it from uh, the other direction, looking from the east to the west, You can imagine along both of the sides, the stadium seats going all the way around. And in the midst of that, you have whatever athletic endeavor was going on at that time. 
So real people had real needs, not much different from us, certainly cultural things that were different, but in terms of needs that all humans have. That's why this book, written to them, is also written to us because of inspiration. We have the same nature, same problems, same issues, same spirituality. So through inspiration, Paul is writing to you and I as well. This long sentence that I don't even put on one slide here, only through verse 24, continues. That's what the dot, dot, dot is, Linda. (laughs) The heart of everything that he's talking about here is in the little phrase, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He's going to emphasize it from a different perspective in verse 25 and 26. But I've shown how all of the parts are telling us something about this righteousness of God. The righteousness of God himself. In other words, the attribute, or probably more accurately, the perfection of God. God is a righteous God. So we spent, what, a Sunday and a half almost on that whole concept to understand what that means. But that same righteousness has been made manifested, or the outline sheet that we had last time, displayed, made known, made visible. Some translations translate it, revealed, has been revealed. And he's going to explain how that happens, how you can see it, how it is made manifested. And all of the parts that relate to that, in terms of that righteousness, the essence of what he's talking about, is how an individual comes into that relationship of a right standing, that's righteousness, before the ultimate standard God himself. God is utterly and ultimately righteous, and he is the standard, and everything emanates from him. And in order to reach that standard, we've seen all of the parts tell us there's nothing that we can do. It's a free gift. So we're going to continue in that in the next verse after verse 24. So it's apart from the law. We've said that. In other words, you can't do anything related to the law. You can't obey the law to gain that righteousness. So it's apart from it. Now, it's not totally divorced from the law. It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, you can find this concept in the law, which is the first five books of Moses. You can find it there. In fact, one of the examples that Paul's going to use later on is Abraham himself, chapter chapter 15. He's going to quote it, and Abraham's the example. So he is kind of a witness from the law, and the prophets kind of summarizing the rest of the Old Testament. He's going to use another example, an example of David, also in chapter 4. David is going to illustrate it. David lives much later, so... What he's going to do is allude to passages in the other part of the Old Testament outside of the first five books. So you can see this concept, but now it's made very visible, in fact, publicly. We're going to see that in verse 25. Even, in other words, if you missed it the first time, even the righteousness of God and this righteousness comes through faith. In other words, when people trust in Jesus Christ, that manifests the righteousness of God in them, at least internally, but we will be able to see the effects of it as people experience it. And the person that receives that 
knows about it because it impacts him in a very real way. He's born again, essentially. So it's through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object of the faith for all those who believe. So it's kind of universal. And in this book, he's kind of separating Jew and Gentile. And then he says, there's no distinction between the two. Jews come into that relationship in the same way as Gentiles. No distinction. For all have sinned, a reminder of the prior passages, all have the universal need, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's just adding to this idea of righteousness, the universal lack of righteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 24, we looked at that last time, being justified. We defined what that means. We have been forgiven of sin. Well, in fact, I'm going to show on the next slide that we'll, we'll review that. Being justified as a gift. Nothing you can do. It's free. That's not clear enough. By his grace. No human effort. And you gain that, that manifested righteousness through faith. No works. Grace. Through the redemption. This is what brought it about. How is this righteousness possible? It's through what Jesus did, the redemption. We spent time on that word, which is in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to expand that as we go further. So that's kind of the first part. See how the parts fit together? We'll review that again later. Now, one of the focuses, as you noticed here, we all fall short of the glory of God. And emphasis of this passage is all of this, we've been stressing it, is what God has done. And this passage tells us a lot about the glory of God. In other words, when we think of the glory of God, remember I mentioned, what, two weeks ago maybe? Or was it last week? I lose track. Lose track of time. Weeks kind of weave together. The glory of God is what? Can't hear you. You just made it up. Manifest. Well, it's manifest, but uh, yeah. The it's glory... Hmm? Yeah, it's a composite. When you see the phrase glory of God, it usually refers to the composite of all that God is. So we fall short of that. In other words, we don't even come close. We've seen that from chapters 1 through 3. So the glory of God, and I got that from uh, Exodus 33 and the first part of 34, where Moses asked God to reveal his glory. And what does God do? He just gives him a little tiny glimpse, because if he had the full glory... He would be basically vaporized, if you will. He would be non-existent. It would destroy him. So he gives him just a little part, the back parts of God, as the text says. In other words, this part of him. And what does he reveal? His patience, his kindness, his goodness. And several of the attributes are listed there. Kind of a composite of those. Well, this passage already has given us much of the glory of God. We spend a lot of time, God is righteous, one of his perfections. Verse 21 and 22, and we're going to see the same thing in verse 25 and 26. The righteousness of God is stressed throughout this passage. The ultimate standard of what is reality, the ultimate standard of what is right and what is wrong, it's a word that is used in the courts. In fact, a lot of legal language here, we've been emphasizing that. Righteousness is one of those. So God's righteousness is infinitely above mankind. 
And there's this gap, man's righteousness. In other words, anything that we can do to try to please God is summarized in Isaiah 64, 6. It's like filthy rags. So the very best that we can do is like a filthy rag. All right? So there's an infinite gap between the righteousness of God and man's best efforts, man's righteousness. An infinite gap that is unbridgeable. So there's nothing that can be done to reach that righteousness. That's why in this passage, the stress, as we've seen in the prior passages, we can't do anything. In fact, that gap cannot be bridged. It has to be bridged by God himself. And all we do is is receive it by faith. It's a gift, as we saw in verse 24. So, God's righteousness, what does it mean? It means that we are wiped clean in terms of sin. And this pertains to everything in the past, everything in the present, everything in the future. It's a legal term. Justification is a legal term. We are declared righteous. So it has a negative. You have to wipe the slate clean. Like you're standing before a judge and uh, all that is true of your condemnation is removed. Now, it's not like God is just kind of fudging here. It has to be dealt with, and it's been dealt with through the redemption of Christ. We looked at that. So there's a positive to it. It includes God imputing righteousness. We looked at that idea. God is putting to, this is an accounting term, God is putting to our credit. He's not making us righteous. That won't happen until we go to be with him when we are removed from these sinful bodies. But as far as the present is concerned, we are credited or imputed righteousness. God views us as if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ because he views Jesus Christ in us. Because Jesus paid the sentence. We're condemned. Jesus paid the price. That's redemption. That's the price. Redemption is buying something out of the slave market. Saw that last time. Out of that slave market, Jesus paid the full price so that we can be forgiven, wiped clean, and we can be declared righteous. That's justification. So being... Justified, that's verse 24. That's what they call the great exchange. Yeah, you to call it that. The great exchange, yeah. Jesus Christ and his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Exactly, very good. Who says that? Yeah, but it was... Yeah, yeah that's a good description. So we, the key terms we've looked at, we've looked at the law, which in that passage, verse 21, it's used in two slightly different senses, Old Testament and Pentateuch. Righteousness, a right standing before God, kind of a brief summary of these ideas. We've seen justification, including forgiveness of sin and declaration of righteousness. There's some other terms that we're going to look at this morning. Grace, undeserved favor. Now, we didn't expand that one. I'm going to save that one for maybe two weeks. we get that far. If not, when I get back from Ukraine. And I'd like to take a closer look at that. That's a very important concept. And even as believers, sometimes we miss some of the 
aspects of it, trying to live the Christian life. I think you understand it clearly in terms of salvation. I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't have a grasp of it, but the same principle applies to living the Christian life. We live it by grace as well. We looked at redemption last time, buying out of slavery. Now, this is spiritual. We see the word is used in the everyday sense of going to the shopping center and buying stuff. And you can go to a slave market in the first century and buy a slave and set them free or utilize them. Same concept, except spiritually we are in bondage to sin. In fact, in bondage to Satan himself. Christ paid the price so that we may be free. That's redemption. And now we belong to someone else. So, which is in Christ Jesus, that redemption, that's the end of verse 24. And that puts us where we're going to pick up this morning. That summarizes what we've been looking at last three weeks, four weeks. Okay. So, some more of the glory of God, righteousness, grace. God is a God of grace. We'll expand that. and We'll look carefully at that more as we come back to it. So we're looking at verse 25, verses 21 and 24, I've summarized as a display of righteousness. That's the key idea there. Now, the same idea, but now it's made public. So now it's demonstrated. Everything that we've talked about, it's displayed, but a lot of it is internal to the individual believer. But now he's going to talk about this righteousness as it could have been seen publicly, and today we can still see it because we can visualize it as we read biblical texts. And you can also see it demonstrated in the effects that it has on an individual. So I call it the demonstration of righteousness, verses 25 and 26. So we're going to get to just 25, the content of that demonstration. Let's take a look at that. And I've been using this chart to kind of put all of the parts together. So we've looked at all of these parts, this display of righteousness, the manifestation of righteousness. It's a part, that's verses 21 through 26. So everything else is telling us something about that righteousness. Verse 21, it's a part from the law. I summarized that already. It's witnessed by the Old Testament. These are the little parts that go with it that just help us to understand what this display is all about. It's for believers, 22 and 23. It's by grace. In other words, nothing we can do. Verse 24, it's through Jesus Christ. That's that last phrase and some other ones that precede it. That's the key because he's the one that paid the price. And now we're going to have a demonstration of that righteousness, 25 and 26. But it's still part, this demonstration is by grace and it's through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's undeserved. And all of what he's going to talk about relates to Jesus Christ. That's why I put the arrow over there. And now we're going to look at the demonstration of it. And it's going to be a public display whom God displayed, there you go, displayed or demonstrated publicly. And there's the word, this was to demonstrate something. See that at the end of where New American Standard puts a period there. In the Greek text it goes on, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. You're going to see that same identical word, demonstrate, in verse 26. We won't get there today. 
So that's where I get the idea there, but it's still part of the bigger idea of displaying it, and it's demonstrated publicly. So God displayed publicly. What does he mean? How could you have seen this? And how can we see it today? Let's take a look at that. It's a public display. And in that, what did God display and when did he display it? When did he display his righteousness? On the cross. And when you read the accounts of the crucifixion, put yourself there. Imagine you visualizing what went on and you can see that public display because we have an inspired record of it. And what does it include? Remember his arrest. It was a public arrest. It was in a public place. In fact, soldiers, in other words, unbelievers were involved. Disciples were there. Whoever else might have been in the vicinity It was a public arrest. It was also a public trial. So crucifixion preceded by an arrest with soldiers, high visibility, a trial before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod Antipas, public display on trial. He was scourged. There were witnesses to it, the scourging. It was public. He was mocked. This is public. He was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and out one of the gates along a public highway, a public display. God is working. God is dealing with all of these issues. Some of these events are even prophesied in the Old Testament. So it's announced ahead of time, a public display (laughs) of righteousness. And it's, like I said, on the main, one of the main highways. It's on the way out of Jerusalem to the north. It's at midday, bright sunlight. It's not in seclusion. It's not in quiet areas. It's not out of sight. At noon, public display. Before two criminals, public execution. And executions in that day were public. Everyone could see them. It was a sign that God made in case you missed it. What happened at midday? Darkness. What's going on? Something unusual is happening. Something miraculous. Text doesn't tell us how God pulled that off. But it does tell us that it happened. And it's inspired. So there was a sign associated with it. There's observers of the cross. The gospel writers make make it clear that there were women there. Disciples were there. There were others. This was public, public display. There was darkness. There's the darkness. Well, there was another sign. What the, the, the sign that I have there? What else? Earthquake. Earthquake. And the renting of the of the uh, curtain in the temple. So even if you weren't on site, you would have been shaken by the earthquake. You would have, if you were near the temple, you would have seen the curtain torn. If you missed that, there was darkness at midday. Well, there are also the people that came out of their graves. Yeah, there was, there's lots of phenomenon there. Exactly. Okay, so darkness and another, and the earthquake. What was the other sign? What did I have in mind there? Oh, what I had in mind there is you had a public, public sign on the cross. Remember, it's written in what languages? Three. Three languages. So if you only understood Greek, you had a Greek 
wordy. If you only understand Hebrew, it was in Hebrew. And if you didn't understand Greek and Hebrew, it was also in Aramaic, the kind of common language of that day. That's the sign that I meant there. So not only that sign posted on the cross, a public display, not in private, not spiritual, visible. That's why it's a demonstration. Make sense? Okay. This indicates another perfection of God. Not only is he righteous, not only is he a God of grace, and we're going to see more of that in a moment, but he is sovereign. He orchestrated all of those events, and some of them were miraculous, like the darkness, like the tearing of the curtain, like the earthquake and the raising of dead people from graves. That was miraculous, but a lot of it, he orchestrated everything. Jesus uttered words that are recorded and prophesied hundreds of years before. So God was sovereign, verse 25. So what is this demonstration? What's the first aspect of it? In verse 25, here's a hard word that most Christians don't understand. So let's take a look at it. Propitiation. It's a theological term. Remember, this passage is written for believers, people who have already experienced God's righteousness. It's written to the believer so that we have a very clear understanding of what happens when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, or to share with an unbeliever so that we can clearly and simplify it so that they understand And we'll talk about a simple presentation of the gospel so that they can understand what it, what they need to, I want to use the word do, but what they need to believe in order to receive that righteousness. So we have a lot of theological terms. We've already seen several of them. Righteousness being one of them. Redemption being another one. Justification being another one. Now propitiation. What does that mean? So let's take a look at it. So whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. What's that all about? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament and think in terms of what is this concept? What is this idea? Well, first of all, in the Old Testament, the focus of everything going on in Israel was Temple Mount, Now, that's a photograph, present day, an aerial shot. And by the way, for those of you that went to Israel, we stayed in a hotel just off the site, off the slide there, within a thousand feet of Temple Mount. And I've requested that we stay in that same hotel next year. But anyway, that's Temple Mount from the air. At the center, today, there's a mosque. But most archaeologists believe that it's on that very site that the Solomonic temple and then the later first century temple existed which was the focus of what God provided for Jewish people in the Old Testament or to make access to himself I'm going to give you some background here so uh, reconstruction in Jerusalem it's a first century model and to give you a perspective, those are real trees in the background, and you have a city of Jerusalem in model form. The center structure there, that the temple building itself, is about four foot tall in the model. Okay, to give you a perspective. 
Now, this photograph, I like it because it's it's a good uh, photograph of Temple Mount and in the background, the first century city. Uh, it's been moved to a new site, and we saw it at a different site. At this point, it was at a different site. In fact, this is where it's at today, although you can't see the background, a different shot of the same temple. In fact, I took that photograph last year. Large area. Now, the columns give it kind of a deceptive perspective there. But on a feast day, a normal feast day of which there were three where Jewish people would come to Jerusalem, Temple Mount could could house over 100,000 people. That's what Josephus tells us. That's Temple Mount. We'll visit that again. And if you remember the size of it when we were there, and you can imagine 100,000 people on that site. Here's an artist's kind of conception of the building itself, the temple. Remember the temple didn't have chairs. You didn't go in. In fact, no one really went in except the high priest once a year, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. The arrows on the kind of this schematic to the right there and the artist's conception on the arrow to the left there. High priest once a year entered the temple, the Holy of Holies, and what did he carry with him? Blood. Blood. A bowl of blood. Why? Well, answer that in a moment. That's just a close-up of the same thing. You might be able to make up, uh, see those wings there, two sets of them. Now, they may not have been arranged like the artist puts there, but you see the high priest, he's about to enter, and he do that once a year to offer atonement for the nation. This is the imagery that we have in Romans. It's coming from this. And in the Holy of Holies, what was what's called the Ark of the Covenant, and the top plate there, which was plated with gold, was called the mercy seat. It was the way that God provided, and we're going to see more of that. We won't get to it today. Well, we might, maybe. Where God provided the means where man could meet God. And because of sin, man can't approach a holy God. In other words, that sin must be dealt with. And God made a provision in the Old Testament that anticipated the ultimate provision, the ultimate provision of Jesus Christ. So the high priest would enter. Now, this is the ark that's described that would go into the tabernacle, and it's described in Exodus 25, when we have exact dimensions. God gives Moses exact dimensions Exodus 25, 10 through 22, those are the dimensions in, in our conventions. It's made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was the, and the top was a mercy seat with pure gold. That mercy seat, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal once a year to atone for the sins of the nation. The covenant or the Ten Commandments and other parts of the covenant were inside the box, inside the ark. So that's what's behind that. The mercy seat, the place where the blood was sprinkled in the temple. This was probably possibly what it looked like, probably bigger and more elaborate. 
But the Greek word that we have in the New Testament, elasterion, that Greek word, that means mercy seat. That golden part where the blood was sprinkled, it's mentioned 21 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's the Septuagint. We abbreviate it with LXX, Septuagint. It's a Greek translation, the same Greek word that we have in Romans 3.25. refers to that mercy seat. There's another word that we find in the New Testament, elasmas, which is related to it as well. And we see it in 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10. In fact, let's look those two up. Somebody look them up. By the way, the first word... Elasterion only occurs in two places in the New Testament. One of them, Romans 3.25. The other one is in the book of Hebrews. But this other form, which has kind of the same idea, is in 1 John. Who's got it? Connie, you got verse 2 or 2.2? 2.2. Two, two. Two, two. He is the elasmas, the propitiation. You could even say he is the mercy seat. Keep reading. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay, who's got 410? You got it? This is love. This is love? Keep reading. We love God. He loved us. And sent his son to propitiation. Sent his son to be the mercy seat, you could say, for our sins. The place where blood was sprinkled. The place that made atonement. The place where the price was paid. That's the idea here. Now, theologically, we'll talk about what it means. It's the redemption with his blood. Redemption was made. The penalty was paid. In other words, Christ suffered everything that we deserve when he died on the cross. And the Bible uses the imagery of the shedding of his blood because when the Jews brought a sacrifice in the Old Testament... They would cut the throat of the animal to kill it, and blood would spurt out. It was a bloody mess. The shedding of blood was a picture of death, and that's the penalty that was paid. That's the price. That's the redemption for our sins with his blood. So the mercy seat is the place where the atonement was made. We could call Jesus Christ on the cross the mercy seat if we were Jewish believers, and it would be perfectly accurate. What does it mean? It was at that place that God's righteous standards were met. The penalty was paid. The price was paid. So it's the satisfaction of God's legal righteousness. That is what propitiation means. You got it? So when you think of propitiation, think of the imagery of that mercy seat, and that mercy seat was the place where the justice of God was satisfied. God was satisfied, and he was satisfied in the Old Testament with those animal sacrifices because they anticipated that ultimate shedding of blood, that ultimate sprinkling when Jesus would die on the cross. 
And that was the ultimate propitiation or satisfaction. In fact, you can substitute the word satisfaction for the word propitiation. You can substitute mercy seat where God's righteous nature and requirements were satisfied. You got it? Propitiation, Terry? Um, the Old Testament obviously didn't have this form of the view that we have now of Christ. But everybody's saved by faith. They were saved by faith. Symbolism toward yes. the Old Yes. Because that, that was God's provision for them. Right. In that time frame. Yes. Very good. Very accurately stated. Okay? God provided that means. Now, they couldn't see what the priest was doing that one time, but they had weekly sacrifices where they saw that one time was for the whole nation, but week by week, when they brought sacrifices of animals, they could see the shedding of blood, and it represented the same thing. The animal was the substitute for them, just as Christ is the ultimate substitute for our sin. Mary Lee. I, I think that sometimes, certainly here in America, we have a really hard time grasping that because we think of justice as happened here and we don't recognize that there is an absolute justice where... Absolute, yes. I mean, you know, someone's child is killed by a drunk driver. How do you get justice? You don't. Um, a settlement doesn't bring justice or terrible things that happen because we don't usually see that. We just have minor inconveniences for the most part in right. our lives. But to recognize that for the horrible things that you have endured, uh, think of Iraq and right. Uganda, Kenya, those places, they are horrible things. That have or if you've lost your child in as a result of a careless act, yeah. Yeah, or your daughter's been captured by the Boko Haram and right. you don't ever get her back. That there is an absolute justice where all of these wrongs will be absolutely and thoroughly and completely not just whitewashed over. Right. Which is it is not whitewashed over them. Yes. But and every other system. Right. And and so it's just like, well God says, Oh, that's okay, never mind. But here nope. that those sins will be completely and even our sins will be completely and thoroughly and absolutely satisfied in every way that there will no longer be a charge. And God in the future will, in fact, effect that justice that you're talking about. Well, that's what in other words, for. that we're waiting for. That's why we yes. do this now. It's still by faith for what's coming. Yes. It still is by faith. It's not right. just right now. It's right. that these other things will finally be the, the in-laws or the guy that cheated you out of your right. inheritance, all this stuff, right. finally be thoroughly satisfied. But as far as God is concerned, his justice, once and for all, the book right. of Hebrews says, has been satisfied. It's been done, but we don't see it all. Yet, yet, yet. Mm-hmm. Jeremy? This doesn't, this doesn't get applied to your account automatically. You have to have the faith and accept it. And that's what the passage stresses. Yeah, exactly. It's by faith for those exactly. who have believed by grace. Yes. Right. Yeah, God's justice has been satisfied. By the way, who was the one? Connie, I think. Remember I said verses 1 through 24 is for us. 25 and 26 on your outline sheet is God demonstrate his righteousness for God. This is what I meant. 
I didn't make it clear when we first talked about it. You, you questioned uh, my theology, maybe. <laughs> In other words, when Christ died on the cross, not only did he do everything that was required for you and I, but he also accomplished things for God himself. And one of the things that he accomplished for God was he satisfied all of the legal requirements that God has for bestowing righteousness. Does that make sense? Does that make better sense? That's what I meant. Hey, Ray, just a quick question. Do you use grace and mercy as saints? No. Can no. you explain the difference because we think about the grace that the Christ gave us and what they call it the mercy seat, which is, you know, there's a, there's something relational between the two, right? Yeah, there's and there's a relationship. Christ died, yeah. took the place of that blood. On yeah, the mercy earth. is one aspect of grace is the way I would uh, distinguish the two. In other words, grace is kind of the overarching perfection by which God deals with us. And he deals with us by grace. His love is by grace. His mercy is by grace. His patience is grace. In other words, these are ways that God expresses grace. There's a multitude of ways. So, so did you say the mercy in, seat. in the Old Testament, the mercy seat, it was just saying, you know, I, I, I should be judging you for these things. Right. I'm giving you the mercy right now. Right. And that's kind of temporarily until yeah. Christ yeah. for the, the whole thing. Right? And we'll see in because in the forbearance of God, that's grace too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's an expression. In other words, God passed over. We'll get to that. Okay, good question though. Propitiation, we're at the bottom, so last of the theological terms. We'll come back to justification. He mentions it again. We'll come back to righteousness, but propitiation, God's justice satisfied. Then back to the text. It's in his blood through faith. There it is again. Kind of reminding us, the only way that we access it is through faith. The only way it's applicable to a person is they've got to put their trust in it rather than any righteous deeds that we can perform. In fact, our, any righteous deeds, the best that we can do is filthy rags through faith. So the faith idea is emphasized. Now he's going to deal, and we don't have time to deal with it. Let me just introduce it, and we'll pick up here next week. There's a past purpose of this demonstration. He's going to give us two aspects. A past aspect, and then there's going to be a present aspect. Notice at this present time. But in the past, what did he do? He demonstrated it. His righteousness was demonstrated in that he passed over something, anticipating what he would ultimately do once for all in Christ. So let's look at this real briefly, and then we'll come back next week, Lord willing. Let's look at this idea of forbearance. That's also in verse 25. And we only have one more slot after that, so we're getting close to the end of our sentence here. These are all the parts. I do the chart so that you can see how this very complicated sentence, all of the parts are contributing. All of them are telling us something about the display of righteousness and kind of another big idea, the demonstration, but that's still part of the display. But I've broken 25 and 26 out because we have an emphasis there on demonstration. The word is used two times. Okay, to demonstrate something. In other words, to not only make visible, it's a similar word to what we had earlier. It's a different word, however, to kind of emphasize, to demonstrate his righteousness. We're still talking about righteousness being demonstrated. See how the theme continues through the whole passage, through the whole sentence. When you demonstrate 
it's more than just a poster. You're showing how something goes about. It's a Yes. There's an activity. Yeah, and I think the emphasis here where he starts, it's a public display. It's visible. And what he's going to get at here, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were also public. They were in the center of the city, either at the tabernacle before the temple or in the temple, which was at the focus of everything in Israel, to demonstrate righteousness again. Because in the, in other words, he's going to expand on this. In the forbearance of God, the idea of forbearance, idea of patience, or you could even say, God put up with you, humans. Forbearance. That's a perfection of God. Forbearance related to his patience. He passed over sins previously committed. Passed over. They weren't dealt with in an ultimate sense. God, being outside of time, not only knew, but knew that he would, in fact, bring the ultimate sacrifice sovereignly. And in that, he would make provision for all sin in the past, future, and present. So I want to kind of expand that. And we'll take a look at it. We'll go all the way back to Genesis and look at the whole background. And basically, he's giving us a summary of world history here. I'm going to talk a little bit about that Sunday in the morning, and I'm going to expand upon it in the afternoon. Interesting that it kind of falls coincidentally on the same Sunday. So those of you that come in the afternoon are going to get a double dose of it and an expansion of it. But he's actually talking here... In the forbearance of God, passed over sins. When did sin begin? Genesis. With that, yeah, in Genesis three, with Adam and Eve. Did sin somehow end in sometime somewhere in there? No, nope, it continued all the way. Was it present in the first century? Yeah, it's alive and well now. Okay, and it's alive and well now. God dealt with it in a different way before the cross, and now with the cross, He's dealing with it in a final way that has implications even for the future. And what I'm going to give you is an outline of world history on one slide to show you how God is dealing with sin. In fact, you could summarize world history by looking at it from how God is dealing with sin. And at the end of world history, he will have completed his work of dealing with sin. And it's going to take all of world history. Now, next week, we're going to emphasize this idea of love as well, even though the word is not in the passage. But God displays both his love and his justice on the cross. He wants to close for us. Bob. Our Father, we're so grateful for the sacrifice that you arranged so conduct. Amen.